0: So, uh, uh, he's, I gotta turn off my clock. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, that's okay. Can I run and get other glasses? Yes. Go for
2: it.
3: Yes. <laughs> I see that nobody drinking most... tonight.
2: What
4: do you um, mean? i excuse you. I
2: finished Hello. mine. We're absolutely I drinking I tonight.
0: and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions, to understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your enthusiasm. The Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter Six, Effects of Hormones on Renal Function. This is gonna be a great chapter and we got a full house. Tonight's crew includes JC. Hello everybody.
5: Happy to be in this episode. Juan Carlos Veles here from Oxford in New Orleans. Excellent.
0: Melanie Honig.
1: Hi, Melanie Honig here. I'm from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and I am a licorice lover. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent. Excellent. Leticia Rowling. Hi,
2: everyone. This is Leticia. I'm from UCSF and I do not like licorice.
0: <laughs> Roger Rodby.
3: Roger Rodby here, Chicago, Rush University Medical Center. Uh, I don't think I've ever had real licorice. I've only had the fake stuff, and I love it. Amy Yao.
6: I'm Amy Yao. I'm from the University of Arizona in Tucson, and this chapter definitely made me think a lot. There's lots of hormones involved.
7: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Josh Waitzman. Sure. Josh Waitzman here, a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And I agree, it feels like we become endocrinologists this and
0: next episode. Excellent. And Anna Gaddy.
4: Hi, this is Anna Gatti. I'm a nephrology fellow at Indiana University and I am a Twizzler lover.
0: Twizzler, not real licorice. Not real licorice. Did you guys watch uh, The Good Place? Right, every time they talked about Janet, she's like, not a real girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Twizzler, not Not real licorice. licorice. Uh, JC, you had some thoughts about how best to use this podcast? Yes, uh,
5: just uh, sort of a recommendation for the listeners. In renal physiology, we all know it's a it's a very visual topic that we learn it better by using diagrams and graphs and putting numbers on a paper. Uh, since this is a listening experience, I think it will be very helpful for listeners to try to read the chapter ahead of the episode. So for those of you who are following, try to anticipate what's going to be the next chapter of the book. And if you can read a chapter, I think it's going to be a better experience when you actually listen to the podcast. But
1: you're still welcome, right? You're still welcome if you didn't get to read it. Yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not
3: you can listen
5: to, to it, test. read it,
7: and then go back and listen to it again. That's totally fine with us, just as so long as we're not the Notes for your book club that JC is running at Oxnard. Roger, what were,
0: you, what, were you th- what were your thoughts?
3: Well, i just going to say you know, the, the, the listeners ought to realize that uh, we've certainly read it probably once or twice, if not more, before this each of the podcasts. So uh, it's got to be pretty tough to follow if you haven't had a good look at it.
4: And now that we are we have a couple episodes out, I've listened to them, and then I've gone back and read the first couple chapters again, too, being like, oh, I didn't catch something the first
0: time. So, And that's actually an interesting experience. So what was it like reading the chapter after humbling. listening to the podcast? Very
4: humbling. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's things, like I said, there are things that I uh, didn't catch the first time. That, like when we were actually recording it. And then when I went back and listened, I got even more out of it the second time. So
0: The basic concept of this was, you know, I used to listen to this Game of Thrones podcast. And it was a recap podcast where they would summarize what happened. And you would never think about listening to the podcast before you'd watch the episode you'd watch the episode and then you'd listen to the podcast and you're like oh that's why that was happening or that's why that was interesting oh that was a character we'd seen before i had totally forgotten that that was a previously character and that's what we're we're trying to provide that type of context you know kind of that extra level of understanding
7: And I think if you're someone who had listened to a Game of Thrones recap podcast and are five minutes into this episode, you were exactly our target audience. So stick with us on this two-year journey.
0: Anybody else also having some regrets about Channel Your Enthusiasm? Every time I try to look us up on Google, I just get swamped by... What's the actual show Curb called? Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, the names are not different enough. I don't think we have enough Google space between the names.
2: Yeah, no, no regrets. I think this is a great name and it's we're on a podcast channel and we are very enthusiastic about renal physiology. So this is the name.
0: Okay, so we are in chapter six, the effects of hormones on renal function. And the chapter begins with the mechanisms of hormone action. And he talks about adenyl cyclase and guanyl cyclase. Does did anybody find this interesting or valuable? So, so I got to say, I'm probably the one of the biochemistry lovers
7: in the podcast crew, or one of the most hearty biochemistry lovers in the podcast crew. Hadn't noticed that. Yeah, no, oh. yeah, really. Slight tip off here. I feel like this is a part of every. Cell biology and biochemistry textbook I've ever read. There's a chapter on signaling transduction pathways and second messengers. And this feels like a very nice description of that, but also it's something you've probably read in your biology class in college. Again, you reviewed it when you took the MCAT, and then you reviewed it again in that first month of medical school when everyone was blitzing through all these topics you thought you'd never see again. And you probably saw it again one more time when you're studying for step one. So I, I think this is an area where you see these key, what's the word I'm looking for? The We're foundational concepts, Yeah, like foundational yeah. concepts, the same pattern of signaling of thing binds to the thing on the outside of the cell, Internal inside of the cell system is activated, leads to downstream effects, or for the steroid hormones, crosses the cell membrane, works inside the cell, goes to the nucleus, lots of stuff happens inside the nucleus we don't really know. More stuff happens, and so I think like if you have those two separate buckets of thing binds to the solar surface receptor versus crosses the membrane, binds to the mineral mineral corticoid receptor, and goes to the nucleus and does lots of stuff, you're in a, in a good place. I think moving into the rest of the chapter.
0: Do we think there's any value here knowing the which ones are cyclic AMP versus GMP? Does that is that useful at all?
4: I kept trying to find some way, hoping that this time would be the time I'd remember it, but I don't. I don't. I'm not that hopeful.
0: No,
6: I mean, I think the only reason why this is probably helpful, and just like Josh mentioned, I instantly learned this in undergraduate med school and then forgot it. And then when I um, was a fellow, I was helping with um, one of the Mount Sinai medical student courses, the molecular cellular and genetics class, and basically had to relearn this stuff again. And it's really interesting to think about all of the advances that are happening in medicine. It's no longer cell biology. It's all molecular biochemistry. So in terms of like understanding new medications, I think going back to the... The foundations to have a strong understanding of like where these receptors act and where the hormones are a- interacting with the cells, I think is going to help you probably be a better clinician if you want to use drugs maybe off-label or if you have a new disease process that you're trying to understand.
2: I do think that the big like the big bang for a buck in this chapter are the ADH, aldosterone, the other big uh, hormone players, but these are good pages to come back to as you. Continue to build on this may be something that initially on the first pass of the chapter you may skip over but then come back to.
5: Yeah, I mean I, I agree this is sort of the essence of cell signaling receptor ligand leading to some sort of signaling to the to the cell and leading to a gene transcription and a cell effect. You know it's interesting recently a couple the last couple of years at Kidney Week there were talks about how metformin activates AMP and they're trying to discover secondary uh, uses of, of drugs that are already in the market that uh, that can be used, not because in the case of metformin, it has anything to do with glucose control, but because of the Salgic AMP activity could have a different effect. So I think it's something that... It's an evolving field, and we're going to probably start getting targeted you know, medications developed using this concept.
1: I was just going to add that I think there was a time when there was some interest in measuring cyclic AMP in the urine. And so I think this was part of that, and that's part of why this ended up in the chapter. And now I think it really is less important. What would have been nice in this spot might have been some exciting intracellular cascades with maybe the wink kind or SPAC or something like that, which would have had a home here, perhaps. And now we we have real clinical applications for those, but that's not in the chat. The one
0: uh, signaling system that I did not learn in college was this um, phosphatidyl inositol turnover and how it generates arachidonic acid and may produce prostaglandins. And I know this has become real hot in regulating ADH, and we see it become very active in thiazide-induced hyponatremia. And so I thought that was interesting. And again, something that I was not super aware of. But otherwise, I think I agree with you guys. And I think I'm going to just push right through this unless anybody wants to stop before we get to ADH. Okay, antidiuretic hormone, and so there's a pretty standard format that Rose takes when he goes through each one of these hormones. He gives a quick introduction about it, then he talks about uh, production, action, regulation, or control. That's what we have. So, kind of the introduction to ADH. Why do we have so many names for this hormone? Why is it antidiuretic hormone and vasopressin? What's the, what's the story there? And arginine. Arginine vasopressin specifically.
3: Well, it has two effects. It has a diuretic, antidiuretic effect, and and a uh, and a vasopressive effect. So, pins, you know. Yeah,
0: but we we have a lot of hormones that have multiple effects. We don't give them different names. It's
3: one hormone, right? It's only one compound. It has multiple effects. Yeah, but these are really different effects if you think about it. I mean, one is for water, and one is a suppressor.
7: And that a lot of these hormones were kind of discovered in two different places, given two different names. Then historically, and, and like, then realize, yeah, both names kind of exist simultaneously. Both get a footing, and then oh yeah, they're the same model molecule, we should have both talked about the same thing. So that's probably it where it's confusing we're at, though. But it is, I agree.
4: I think if we told people that um, you know, that vasopressin also is acts as an antidiuretic hormone, I think they could make that I mean we've gotten an entire generation of medical students to understand that brain natriuretic peptide is has little
0: to do with brains or natroasis. Got it. Okay.
7: I think it's it's helpful when we think about uh AVP or ADH or whatever we're gonna call it. DDAVP being the synthetic version of ADH that we can use clinically and that that is resistant to degradation by a lot of these endopeptases is a much longer half-life in people than ADH does, which he talks about on the bottom of 168. That The half-life of ADH is 15 or 20 minutes. It's a really short-acting hormone. And if you think about how we give DDAVP to people, it's twice a
0: day, maybe three times a day at the most.
4: Even for uremic platelet dysfunction, we don't have to run them down to
0: biopsy like that second. So what What's the half-life of like insulin? Because that's got to be short, also, right? IV insulin—that's fifteen minutes, right? Yeah, it's also short. am I wrong on that? It's also short. Mm -hmm. So my—I guess my question is: Is ADH a particularly short-acting hormone, or is this just kind of par for the course? For I mean, there 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 are
7: things that are even shorter-acting, and we'll talk about like PTH later. I think next episode. Uh, But there are certainly things that are longer-acting as well.
5: Desmopressin or DDAVP. It's actually very short-acting. We have to give you a few minutes before the biopsy. We're going to give it intravenously. So it is short-acting. I think in pregnancy, this vasopressinase, I believe it's just produced by the placenta. But otherwise, DDAVP will be metabolized by whatever endopeptidase we have. The diuretic, the antidiuretic effect could last 8 to 12 hours, but I don't think the half-life is much different. I guess it's probably one or two hours compared to minutes of vasopressing.
7: Yeah, I'm looking that up and I agree with you. It looks like it's about an hour, 15 minutes half-life for DDAVP. So yeah. we have some time, but not as much as maybe we made it sound like
3: before. Well, there's the, there's the drug half-life and there's the biologic half-life. And
1: Oh, I'm so half-life. happy you said that.
5: Yeah, I mean, I remember numerous times that we gave DDAVP for a prior to our biopsy and something happened an hour later, we're still prepping the patient. So we had to redose for that reason.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I think the old study showed that the effect for DDAVP in terms of preventing the remake bleeding was maxed at like 30 minutes, lasted for about an hour, and then beyond that, it kind of started to fade.
3: That's a whole other thing, though. That has to do with, you know, Von Wildebrand factor. and Yeah. So it's, it's not really affecting... Urinary dilution and concentration. <laughs>
5: that's
0: true. All right, let's go back to uh, vasopressin. Okay, so vasopressin is uh, synthesized in these uh, in these nuclei: the para, what the supraoptic hypoth. No, excuse me. I'm sorry.
3: The supraoptic neuron and the paraventricular neurons.
0: Paraventricular and supraoptic, and that's where the this is synthesized, and then it goes down the hypophyseal tract, and it stops a little bit in the medial eminence, but mostly is in the posterior pituitary. And Rose makes this point that if you have damage that's inferior to the medial eminence the ADH still has access to the peripheral circulation through the medial eminence and so that you are able to maintain your ADH access there but largely you're going to be storing and releasing these this hormone from the posterior pituitary we're good there?
3: Yeah. And uh, the, the super optic neurons and the paraventricular neurons, they respond to different stimuli. And uh, so the super optic, pretty much an osmotic mediated ADH release, and the paraventricular, pretty much a hemodynamic. And so the easy way to remember that is optic, osmotic, and uh, ventricular volume. Nice. Ooh, I like that. Nice. Not that it'll ever come in handy. I was going to say, uh, is
4: anyone ever going to ask me that? I hope not.
0: <laughs> okay. Action so talks about there are V1 and V2 receptors, and then there's a V, what was it, a V2B or V1B uh, or V3? V1B or V3. Okay, so let's just disagree so v- with
4: it's V3. Come on, V1B. Sure.
7: If you have a naming system that's V1, V2, it seems like it should be V3.
0: I Completely agree. So, V1 receptors, this is the, the vasopressin effect. It's That's, the presses is right. the
7: vasos effect. This is the, the <laughs> chapter where all the hormone <laughs> names make sense.
0: Thought, <laughs> vasos, it tenses the, the, NGOs, tenses and it the angios the and presses the
4: the vasos. Yeah. I, was I was hoping,
1: hoping someone like,
4: would say that.
0: <laughs> okay. And the V2 is it, it triggers water retention in the collecting tubules. And V3 is prostaglandin.
4: It's the prostaglandin uh, effect.
0: It says a third receptor, the V3 or the V1B receptor appears to mediate the effect of ADH on the pituitary, facilitating the release of ACTH, right? And so this is, this is, ends up being important when you think about how adrenal insufficiency triggers hyponatremia. Yeah. That ADH release well, is co-released with ACTH. I have the, do I have that story right? It's co-released with CRH.
6: CRH, yeah.
0: CRH. Yeah, I think it's... So this... I think it's... What, but here we have ADH. Oh, so this is the uh, negative feedback here that ADH is now uh, no, it's facilitating the re- yeah. release of ACTH. So this one's not the co-release story. It is, no. It is in a way because ADH and CRH are co-released. And this is
5: another example of you have a system where you have a hormone causing an effect And you have another system that's going to buffer it. How does it work? ADH is released. CRH is released. CRH is going to lead to ACTH release, which eventually is going to lead to cortisol. And then cortisol is going to inhibit
0: but not there's no V3 in that story that you just gave, right? No, that
5: is the as independent effect of vasopressin suppressing directly into the. V3. That's totally
0: independent. Okay, okay. So the the V3 story is undefined as far as we can tell. Let's ignore it. We, no one cares about V3. Am I right? No. I tried to
7: find something about it. It still hasn't made an impression in the 20 years since the book came out. It's. I was yeah.
0: kind of
4: wondering if Josh was going to be like, in the meantime.
5: It's, more, it's just more redundant to have... This is a
0: secondary effect that ADH has to sort of self-limit its effect. Okay. So the uh, then he goes through the mechanism for water retention. So ADH binds the V2 receptor in the collecting duct. That signals... Um, uh, intrave- intracellular vesicles that are studded with aquaporin 2 channels. They get put into the membrane. apical membrane. Apical membrane. Thank you. They get inserted into the it gets a cons- inserted into the apical membrane, and then water flows down the concentration gradient from the tubule into the medullary interstitium, or if it's in the cortical collecting duct, just into the the rest of the body. And we get equilibration there and reabsorption of a lot of water. And he says that when ADH goes away, you have the reverse and these aquaporin channels coalesce into uh, clathrin-coated pits and get pinched off and brought back into the intracellular compartment.
7: I think that we see that the effects of... ADH by binding to the ADH receptor and then leading to the insertion of these aquaporin 2 channels are really fast because you're taking pre-made aquaporins and sticking them from these vesicles into the membrane. And then I'd like to point out in figure 6-6 we get the return of the toad bladder, which I feel like did not get enough love in the first episode of this podcast it's impossible to give it enough love. i think that's totally fair uh but we see here that these are aggregates which are just clumps of the aquaporin channels that are ready to fuse with the membrane again
0: I swear to God, if, I, if someone showed me that picture and they're like, this is from the Mars rover, I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, like, I have no idea I thought it was a sand garden. Picture. I totally need to trust the, the mention that, that, yo, yo, okay, toad bladder. Yeah, you can tell by those pits, it's clearly toad bladder. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can
1: we just spend another minute, though, on the what Roger said earlier about the biological effects? Because I think that's really fascinating. Uh, you know, so just as Josh said, those aquaporins are ready to go and they're inserted in the membrane and then there must be if you don't have adh around in short order those are gone from the luminal membrane and i think that that is fascinating how quickly that happens so i don't know if anybody else wants to rejoice in that with me but i just
0: i think the the obvious counter story is with aldosterone in which it actually has to synthesize new proteins and you don't have pre-made enac channels that are available to be inserted into the into the cell that you really do need to synthesize and they talk about the long delay they call it 90 minutes it doesn't sound too long but that's a lot longer than you have here but in that situation for sodium retention we have an entirely different system an additional system with a sympathetic nervous system that can help retain sodium running an angiotensin system which are very quick i'm sorry I'm really sorry. It's renin, not renin. Right, and so it's almost a secondary function, and I think we can accept a little bit slowness, but this is the only way to retain water, and so I think it does need to be faster. Okay, so that's water retention. Then he talks about electrolyte handling. Are you
4: going to talk about diabetes insipidus for a second?
0: You are. Anna, tell me about diabetes (laughs) insipidus.
4: Well, he discusses the two different types of hereditary DI. And I think the one that we always think about is the receptor mutation. But I had forgotten that there was a type where they had a mutated aquaporin gene. And so I was just thinking about that clinically when we do a test and we give DDABP for people we think have not a test. But when we give DDABP for nephrogenic DI, is that going to still work in both? Types it should right or
2: would no, it not? Wouldn't the be op- either. Op- 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 no, it's not in either.
0: Right? Yeah. Not in either. Right? So the ddavp is only going to separate out your central di from your nephrogenic, and both of these are examples of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, and so neither of these should respond to ddavp. Okay. Yes. The central di, where you're just missing the ddavp, excuse me, the adh, right, will be will get a rapid. Increase in the urinary concentration. I mean, not up to 1200 like a normal person right. would be because they're going to have a washed up metabolic system, but at least up to isoosmolar.
4: Right. But for purposes of that test, like these will act the same and there's nothing that distinguishes between the two clinically, right? You have to get.
0: Just differences in Mendelian genetics, right? One of them is sex link. What, yeah, because one, one of them is, is autosomal one recessive. Have,
3: yeah, I want you to have a family history, you know, and it's and it's uh, X-linked, so it's going to be pretty much family history of men. Mm-hmm. And the x link is uh, and the uh, the the autosomal, autosomal recessive. This is going to be spontaneous.
4: Yeah, I just I don't think I ever thought about the autosomal recessive type.
3: Well, I don't. I, I have never. I've never heard of them. it before. Yeah, and and I've
0: never seen that. That's right.
3: And there's even there's even an autosomal dominant, which is one percent. I looked up an article about this today. I was kind of curious, as I was thinking, how could anybody survive with this unless they lived in a in a cool environment. If you li- if you had this in Africa, I mean, could you possibly have access to enough water to survive? Because that's the only way you survive is to drink, have access to a lot of water and drink a lot of water. The, the group that reported was out of Netherlands. They had a a really nice report with a lot of patients and talked about it and basically so they, what they do with it with the test is they give you know DDAVP, and if it's uh, the urine osmolarity doesn't go above 200 you've pretty much made your diagnosis but what i thought was very interesting is that the normal urine osmolarity in children gets a little bit better as you get older so if you're less than one year old you can you can't concentrate above 600 and one to two year old you can concentrate about 600 800 and it isn't until you're over two that you can get above 800 so i thought that was interesting and i i don't i don't know why that would be but uh
0: well, as their legs get longer, their tubules get longer, too.
6: <laughs> yeah, I think it's something I, one of the pediatric fathers told me, like the kidney matures like a lot slower, I guess, like that. So actually, when you're born, your GFR is not like 120. When you're born, your GFR is like 30 or something like that. And then at, after a couple of months, you get a normal GFR. I don't know why, but.
0: We need to call a consult.
8: This is Dr. Michelle Rowe. I'm a board certified pediatric nephrologist, so maybe I can shed some light on this. In the first two years of life, kidney function undergoes substantial developmental changes. Although nephrogenesis is complete by 34 to 36 weeks of gestation, size corrected GFR does not reach adult levels until 18 to 24 months of age. An infant delivered at term has an estimated GFR of around 20 to 30. This doubles over the first two weeks of life. This initial increase is due to recruitment of superficial nephrons and an increase in renal blood flow due to decreased renal vascular resistance and increase in systemic blood pressure. The normally low GFR in neonates is further decreased in premature infants due to lower renal perfusion, incomplete nephrogenesis, or reduced nephron number associated with prematurity. And of course, Dr. Rodby is correct that neonates are unable to concentrate their urine like adults. Newborns may only be able to achieve a concentration of 400 milliosmoles per kilo in the first few days of life, and this increases to adult values by about a year of age. This happens for a couple of reasons. First, the medullary osmotic gradient is limited. Newborns have a shorter loop of Henle, which restricts the countercurrent multiplication that usually forms the osmotic gradient. Also, infant breast milk or formula is generally low in osmols such as sodium or protein, so there just aren't as many osmols available to increase tonicity within the medullary interstitium. Finally, the collecting tubule in the newborn is relatively unresponsive to ADH, which also limits concentrating ability. If you need a pediatrician, call me anytime.
3: Has anybody seen a case of hereditary uh, nephrogenic DI?
1: I I do have one. Um, I was going to add, this this guy's not from that, but there was this theory that they all came from Halifax... And he came on the same boat, and supposedly they were extremely thirsty coming over from Europe because they drank all the water. The boat was called the Hopewell. It was the Hopewell hypothesis that everybody came on that boat. But I do have one young young man. Actually, been following him for 15 years, I think. And uh, when he presented, they didn't know their family history for some reason. So mom said to the pediatrician, "Oh my God, I'm nursing all the time, and I'm changing diapers all the time." And he said, "Yeah, you know, new mom, of course." And (laughs) And she said, no, but it's really often. And he said, yeah, that's what it's like. And then he had an upper respiratory infection and couldn't keep up. And then they made the diagnosis because the diapers were very full. So, but now I've been following him a long time. He has four boys. So that's the end of that. And we did a 24-hour urine once and I had to send him home with about six jugs. Because I kept giving them, and he's like, that's not enough. Give me another. Give me another. Um, and just like patients. Right. And
0: so let's, uh, just to rewind. to uh, Clarify. No, no, no. no. This is, It's a phenomenal story. I just want to make sure people, the X-length stuff, especially as internists, we don't do this stuff enough. The error is on the X chromosome. And the father is going to donate either an X or a Y. And if they're going to have boys, he's going to be donating a Y. So he's donating an intact chromosome. He's not transmitting the disease at all. If he had daughters, every one of them would be a carrier. 100% of them would be carriers. And I don't know the story, right? Like we used to say that carriers really had no penetrance, but the Alport story has really turned around. And we now say, hey, women that have one copy of that X gene with Alports are truly affected and have a lot of problems. Do we know the story with with DI? Do the the women have some concentrating defects if they're carriers?
3: It's a really good question. Uh,
1: I don't know the answer. If she did, she didn't notice.
3: But it's true it's the lion hypothesis it just kind of depends on how much of that of that chromosome is in your kidney you could have 10 percent or you could have, and have almost you know one red cell in your urine if you have Alports. So you could have 90 percent by chance and then urine renal failure as a woman and I've, I've, I have both patients in my practice women with the end-stage renal disease from L ports and women with you know two red cells in their urine.
0: Okay so I did get in the, I did interrupt you Ellen were you done with your story which was awesome Well,
1: I could talk about him for a long time but I think it's time to be done. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that's DI. And then, and have you guys heard? Uh, so, this is nephrogenic DI, and I can't ever talk about nephrogenic DI without talking about the acetazolamide story. Have we talked about this yet? We have not. The standard move to treat nephrogenic DI, right, you can't use DDAVP because they have plenty of ADH. That's not the problem. And what you learn in medical school is you give these patients thiazide type diuretics that you try to induce a little bit of volume depletion and decreases the urine output. The other strategies is you can use NSAIDs to decrease the GFR, you can use low solute diets to decrease the load because that's what their urine output's going to be related to. But then there's pretty good animal data and theoretical data about using acetazolamide. And I believe this is the idea here is you're going to kick in a TG feedback by increasing urine sodium in the proximal tubule. And it's like a light switch for these people, right? And there's a great letter to the England Journal of Medicine where they kind of talk about, oh, there was this animal data and we had this theoretical, we tried it on a person with NDI. And, you know, it's like they're turning on the light switch on and off, on and off. And you look at the urine outputs, 18 liters, <laughs> start the drug, goes to to two liters. Turn off the drug goes up to 18 liters. It's really, really pretty interesting. Now, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. But uh if you do run into NDI, and I do see it, it's not uncommon in hospitalized patients. We, we're all talking about we've never seen a, or we've rarely seen a genetic case. But acquired cases of nephrogenic DI is a pretty kind of standard thing that you'll bump into into the wards. And having a having a tool like this in your back pocket makes you feel smart.
3: I mean, 95% of that's from lithium and lithium's a very common drug. And Joel, have you used acetazol all Have you tried it? I have. And, and it, it, it works.
0: And it works
3: because I mean that that was a very um, you know the, the the literature on the rats was very interesting and I don't know that there's even been anything besides that one letter to the editor which was yeah there's know. been
0: a, there's been a couple of subsequent uh, case reports I think in C- in and J C Jason. we'll we'll summarize the whole literature put it there it's good stuff yeah you're right it's a it's a neat it's a neat little story. Okay, so that's DI, that's water handling, and then he gets into this thing that I had never heard of, and this is the ADH's effect on potassium secretion, and that ADH stimulates potassium secretion. Anna, do you want to say something no, about this? No, it's just so cool. Okay. So do you problem, think it's relevant? Well, I think it is interesting because one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit more with aldosterone is how dependent potassium secretion is not only on aldosterone secretion, but also on tubular flow, that you need to have good tubular flow through the <laughs> through the distal nephron in order to get good potassium secretion. And what Rose points out is that if you have a lot of ADH, you're going to be reabsorbing a lot of that water, especially a lot lot of it is going to be in the cortical collecting tubule and then more in the medullary collecting tubule and that's just going to decrease the amount of fluid available for tubular flow and the worry then is well then you could possibly that could possibly result in compromised potassium secretion and by having adh stimulate directly stimulate potassium secretion which he doesn't give a mechanism of how that happens right (laughs) it's just kind of some hand waving there Uh, that is supposed to compensate for that so water reabsorption can be potassium neutral i think i see roger rolling his eyes
3: Well, I just don't think of... I mean, I I think that aldosterone is is a volume, not a flow thing. And I think that tying this to water just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, certainly if if you are pre-renal, and that would be a situation where you're, you would be stimulating ADH and having water reabsorption, you're also going to have proximal sodium reabsorption. And proximal sodium reabsorption means low distal sodium delivery. I've always thought is this as a sodium delivery, not a volume delivery. And the ADH is a water thing. And that's, you know, that's kind of getting past where aldosterone works anyway. But you know, I this is all new to me, so it, I just that's why I don't know if it's really something that's clinically relevant or not. I clearly sodium delivery is very relevant to potassium excretion. I just don't know about water.
0: Well, we certainly don't see hypokalemia in SIADH, right? Diseases with excessive ADH doesn't seem to cause hypokalemia. I don't know how relevant it is. I think it's a brilliant
5: mechanism. Once again, the, the nephron has a way to handle the potential inability to secrete potassium because of the potassium channels that depend on flow. As you mentioned, Joel, the BK channels depend on flow. So if there's less flow, the nephron handles a way to correct that by stimulating directly those channels. I don't know if it's directly the BK channels or the ROMK channels, but it does. What I wanted to share with you anecdotally when I was part of a, of a phase two study with Connie this is many years ago, an intravenous vasopressin receptor antagonist, there was actually an observation of a rise in serum potassium from baseline, not to the hyperkalemic range, but there was a statistically significant increase from a potassium of 4.8 to 5.2. But I agree 100% with Royer in this notion that sodium delivery is probably more critical for potassium secretion. But I think it's interesting.
1: So maybe the comment that said we don't see hypokalemia isn't quite right. Maybe it's that we don't see frank hyperkalemia because of this protective mechanism, if that's a thing. Like, why leave anything to chance? Maybe that's what it is.
0: Okay. Anybody else on this electrolyte handling? We're cool here. So then uh, we move away from V2 to the V1 receptors, and he talks about that this is a potent vasoconstrictor. But I think he kind of then walks away from it a little bit. He kind of says that that in the end, it's not as important as the RAS system. It's here, but its significance was he questioned it clearly. We're talk- this is a powerful vasoconstrictor in critical care. I was a fellow when vasopressin started coming out and being available as a as a drug, and it was really it was really powerful and effective medication. I was what I was listening to some podcast, and they were talking about that, that your first pressor should be oh this was JC on my own podcast, he was saying your first presser should be norepinephrine, and your second one should be vasopressin. Yeah, this is the— the The VAST trial, which came out in 2008,
7: is the trial that looks at vasopress- at norepinephrine plus minus vasopressin. And the outcome there is not, there's no difference in mortality. There's no difference in lots of end organ perfusion markers, but there is a difference in the amount of norepinephrine needed to maintain the mean arterial pressure goal for patients with septic shock. And so the idea is that in patients who are critically ill for extended period of time, they've kind of depleted their ADH stores. And by putting them on this continuous low-dose vasopressin infusion, you can replace it, provide that vasoconstrictive action that they're missing, and keep up their blood pressure and spare them some of the effects of those higher doses of, of norepinephrine.
6: Yeah. I think I had less like digital ischemia and mm-hmm. things like that, right? Yeah.
7: Yeah. And they, so... they don't see... Large amounts of hyponatremia or other problems that you might think with higher doses of vasopressin activating the V2, it's really a V1 mediated effect.
3: So why do you think that is? I mean that that occurred that came to me a year ago. I was thinking about we're using vasopressin. This is vasopressin. It's not vasopressin chloride. It's vasopressin. It's exactly the same hormone. Why do you think we don't see see a SIDH with everybody? It's not the dose.
7: I, I think it is somewhat the dose. I mean it's 0.03 units per hour, right? Like it, it's it's a fairly low dose for most people who are on these vasopressin as a presser infusions.
3: Well, explain that to me because ADH is not a, a very strong, physiologically, it's not We'll go into one of these figures. It's figure actually 6-8, where it takes a much higher dose to see the vasopressin effect and then the antidiuretic effect. You know, physiologically, the ADH levels are much higher as a presser than it is as a antidiuretic hormone. So you would think that anybody on vasopressin for a presser would develop hyponatremia.
0: So I've looked into this a bit. And so one, there are occasional case reports of people developing hyponatremia from vasopressin. So it does happen occasionally. But I agree with you. It is a rare occurrence, and you would think it would be a systematic complication of this drug, and it's not. And the argument that I've heard was that the patients that you use it in tend to have renal failure. They tend to be very oliguric already. And it's just hard to generate this negative electrolyte free water clearance that you would need to get the hyponatremia. That's the argument I've heard.
3: That is probably practically the best answer. But when I looked into this, I I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So I did find some articles on the downregulation of the V2 receptor in patients with sepsis. And that's probably what we're using most of the time anyway. And that made a lot of sense to me because it just seems like everybody you know you get a little nausea and you drop your serum sodium i mean the the slightest thing happens and you drop your serum sodium it's such a sensitive and potent hormone now we're giving it as a drip and nothing happens it has to be uh it has to be something else going on and i think it's a matter of down regulation and i found that i'll I'll send you the link to that article
6: i just gotta say i actually had like a cool case when i was in fellowship i you know i got a call from the resident and he said oh i think you're gonna like this consult and of course it's in the mickey and and every patient has atn so i'm you know it's not really that interesting but anyway and so as this guy was sarcoidosis as soon as they he came in with septic shock as soon as they turned off the vasopressin he started to pee like eight liters a day his and they were like you know we think you're gonna find this interesting and I was like oh actually I do think this is interesting and it uh, turned out that he had um, central DI so uh, and the vasopressin was hiding it essentially
0: so it was it was central DI that was masked by therapeutic vasopressin and when he got well enough that he got off the drug Boom! He had the massive diuresis. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. <laughs>
0: Very cool, Melanie. What'd you
1: have? I, I mean, don't you just think it has to do with what we are giving them? So if they have low urine output, plus minus renal failure, if we give them dilute fluids, then yes, they're going to get hyponatremic. And if they, if we don't, let's. Well, that's not
3: true. I mean, you give somebody with SIDH normal saline, they will they can desalinate it and still get worse. So
1: Yeah, but that depends on what the concentration of their urine
0: is. Yeah, but people with a given therapeutic ADH, I mean, their, their urine concentrated with intact kidneys, it should go up to 800, 1200. I mean, they, they should desalinate. We see that with SIDH all regularly, that you give them you know a couple liters of normal saline, and they'll drop their sodium by six points. Jury's so, out. So the, the argument here from Roger is downregulation of V2 receptors in response to sepsis, and sepsis Tends to be the septic shock or well, the ones that I see them pushing vasopressin early on, not so much in cardiogenic, for example. Okay.
4: As you can hear, we all have different hypotheses as to why we don't see hyponatremia with vasopressin use, but how uncommon is it actually? The 2008 VAST trial was a multi-center randomized controlled trial designed to compare mortality of low-dose vasopressin to that of norepinephrine in patients who had septic shock treated with catecholamine vasopressors. 778 patients were randomized, and ultimately the study concluded vasopressin did not reduce mortality. But perusing the adverse events table reveals that only one patient in each study arm, that's less than 1 in 400 patients, developed hyponatremia to less than 130 millimoles per liter. It is worth noting that any patient with serum sodium less than 130 was excluded from the randomization, but our observation still seems to be pretty correct. As for the reason why, well, we'll let you take our pick from our hypotheses.
0: Then there was a section on renal prostaglandins, and it's prostaglandins, it seems like anytime we talk about prostaglandins, they are countering the primary effect, and once again, they are here. So just like they were in the glomerulus, we had all these things that were causing vasoconstriction. Oh, except for the prostaglandins would reverse it. Here, the prostaglandins are reversing your antidiuresis or your water reabsorption, you get some reversal with these prostaglandins that are promoted. And so again, you know, every time we learn about one of these effects, we just see it is self-modulating. And I think this is just gives you a sense of how fine-tuned all of these processes are in the kidney. And this is just another one of them. It's interesting that it's the mechanism is again, prostaglandins.
3: A lot of it's on the V1 though. And I think that makes a lot of sense because you don't want to constrict the afferent arterial And so you've got this system that's trying to jazz up your blood pressure and it's trying to, re, you know, retain water. And you've got angiotensin 2, which is constricting the afferent arteriole, so you can increase your filtration fraction, but you don't want to constrict the afferent arteriole; You'd like to get as much flow in there. And so I think that the, the, the prostaglandin is there to kind of keep the afferent arteriole open. And
0: then the last section on the effects of ADH. ADH is co-secreted with codicotropin releasing hormone, or CRH, from single nephrons in the paraventricular nuclei. This promotes the secretion of ACTH by corticotropes. This is not an effect. This is not a V3 or V1B situation. It's just whenever you're secreting ADH, you also are getting some CRH being released, which results in ACTH being released, which results in cortisol being released, and that the cortisol then feeds back and suppresses, am I right, you got this right, it suppresses this ADH release. And that's super important because if you have adrenal insufficiency, you've now lost the negative feedback part of this story, and so you would just get con- you can just get continued release of ACTH or be CRH because there's no feedback, and that's going to increase your ADH, and that's going to cause your progressive hyponatremia. Sorry, I think I bungled that explanation. It's not that hard. I don't know why I got this wrong. ADH is co-secreted with CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone. So when you have a need For ACTH, you release CRH. Incidentally, you get some additional ADH. The CRH then stimulates ACTH, which then stimulates cortisol, which then feeds back and decreases both ACTH and CRH. So the release of cortisol, the completion of that cycle, suppresses ADH, which is co-released with CRH. If you have primary adrenal insufficiency, you've lost your adrenal gland, you have no cortisol to feedback, and you get higher and higher levels of CRH release, and that means higher and higher levels of ADH release. This is why adrenal insufficiency is associated with hyponatremia. However, if the adrenal insufficiency is due to loss of CRH release, well, you're not going to get the co-secretion of ADH. So in those secondary forms of adrenal insufficiency, hyponatremia is not prominent. Is that, is that is that what you're trying to get at? Lady, yes, or that's is exactly else?
2: right. And one comment that I wanted to make in the patients that I've seen with this, though, and I don't know if your all your experience has been the same is usually, the hyponatremia though is not as severe as in other causes of like of release of ADH. So, or not that this is a different mechanism because you've removed the inhibition, but for some reason it's always been a mild. That for the most part everybody kind of ignores this mechanism, but so it's always the sodium is like still in the one thirties, but lower side. I don't know if anybody has had a different experience.
3: Well, I've had a couple of patients that were pretty low and, and you're looking at a diagnosis of SIDH. We rule out hypothyroidism, we rule out hypocortisolism and, you know, we go through the motions and it's never there. But then, then when you don't look for it, it's going to be there. So I, I did have a couple of them. And, you know, one guy that was, uh, he had uh, pituitary damage and he went to, out of the country, and he ran out of his cortisol, and he came back, and he was fairly hyponatremic. I think he was in the low 120s. You know, the diagnosis was a little easier because of his history, and, and uh, you know his potassium was high as well, and a little acidotic, and uh, so we gave him hydrocortisone. You know, we replaced him with hydrocortisone, and he had a absolutely massive water diuresis to the point where I had to give him DDAVP to slow him down. I was worried that he would correct too quickly, and I, that was, you know, the best example I can ever have of cortisol not inhibiting ADH, you know, and allowing him to have this water diuresis. Uh, So I think it's real, but you're right. You know, I think we may be missing a lot of these, but...
6: No, I just going to say, like like a pearl for everybody, like if you're doing a stim test, it's okay to give dexamethasone. That's not going to affect the stim test. So I hear that a lot, that, um, oh, we can't do it because the patient's on
4: steroids, but if you put them on a little dex, then you should be able to still do the stim test. I just ran into this with a patient with like a toxo brain lesion and are like, is it cerebral salt wasting? Is it you know? No, no. I know that. <laughs> well, it was a really large mass, so. But it wasn't still, no. But
6: <laughs> what were you gonna say, Jason? No, I
5: just want to reflect when I was a medical student and I learned about adrenal insufficiency. What stands out about AI is hyperkalemia. That's the first electrolyte we think when we think about adrenal insufficiency. So, my simplistic understanding at the time, okay, made sense. You cannot dump potassium, so therefore the hyponatremia must be also related to the inability to absorb sodium. But of course, has nothing to do with that. And it's important to point out that even though the hyperkalemia is related to this connection between the sodium channel and the potassium channel, the hyponatremia in adrenal insufficiency is completely unrelated to those mechanisms, and it has to do only with the fact that cortisol directly inhibits, here
3: and I'll take that another level you know when you think about uh, hypoadrenalism you think about salt wasting and volume depletion but the real you know the blood pressure issue of hypoadrenalism um, is the inability to, for vascular the, the vascular tree to respond to catecholamines you know the minute you give hydrocortisone the blood pressure will come up long before anything could happen with volume and you can give a lot of volume to somebody who's who's in Addisonian crisis you might think that they're volume depleted but if they don't have the vascular tone which they won't have until you give cortisol so it really isn't imp- Interesting. In both of those situations, it's kind of not what you would think. You know, it's really Mm -hmm. about cortisol, cortisol about water and cortisol about catecholamine
1: responsiveness.
0: Melanie had some post-recording thoughts on hyponatremia.
1: I just wanted to share a few thoughts on hyponatremia and hormones. We all learn to reflexively measure cortisol and thyroid hormone in the setting of hyponatremia. And many of us have been taught that these hormones tonically inhibit vasopressin release such that hormone deficiency leads to inappropriate vasopressin release. But this story of impaired water excretion is so much more complex. First of all, in primary hypoaldosteronism, there's deficiency of both mineralocorticoid and glucocorticoid. For the mineralocorticoid, remember that this leads to steady loss of sodium from the distal nephron. Patients complain of hunger for sodium and eat crazy things or drink crazy things like pickle juice. In experimental models of primary hypoaldosteronism, and by the way, this would be adrenalectomy typically, and then they would give back the hormones until the animal recovers from the surgery. And then... Stop the hormones on day zero. So in experimental models with adrenalectomy, they would document a fall in weight and blood pressure very promptly along with a decline in the serum sodium. Along with this, there was a prompt rise in angiotensin II and vasopressin. And if you give a vasopressin inhibitor, then the mean arterial pressure will plummet. So vasopressin here is baroreceptor driven, not from the tonic inhibition because of the deficit of cortisol. But what about cortisol. So if you correct for the mineralocorticoid loss, so that we're just talking about the situation, say adrenal atrophy from someone who has prior corticosteroid use. So in that animal model, do the adrenalectomy, but replace the mineralocorticoid. These animals also have impaired water clearance, and this coincides with a fall in stroke volume and a rise in blood pressure. Because remember that cortisol is part of the stress response and this has direct effects on vascular smooth muscle and also somehow facilitates the effect of catecholamines on the vasculature. So here too, there is likely a baroreceptor response component to the release of vasopressin from cortisol deficiency. Okay, so is there an effect, a missing negative feedback? Probably. Cortisol deficiency does produce uh, an increase in production of vasopressin in the paraventricular nuclei, and as Roger said, these neurons seem so sensitive that any little tickle and we're going to get vasopressin release, but I think that is a relatively small part of the story. What about thyroid hormone? Thyroid hormone deficiency might stimulate vasopressin release, but probably only in very severe myxedema, the slowing of organ function, perhaps with very limited cardiac output because of severe and profound and prolonged thyroid hormone deficiency. It certainly does not cause release of vasopressin in acute hypothyroidism. And just to finish up, I want to share a really cool study that was in BMC endocrinology. So in this study, they took just over 200 uh, consecutive patients who were having medical thyroidectomy if you will by having radioactive iodine these patients were instructed to follow a very salt restricted diet for 2 weeks to avoid iodinated salt and then they received radioactive iodine and were placed in a protected room and told to drink a lot of water to rinse out the radioactive iodine and also a very salt restricted diet and of these over, let's say, 212 patients, only four developed a serum sodium of less than 130. And of those three either had CKD or were on diuretics, only one developed sodium less than 130 with acute thyroid hormone deficiency, which would be that negative feedback if that was the mechanism. And that patient drank 17 liters in the three days they were in the room on a very salt-restricted diet for two weeks. So I think the thyroid hormone story, although always useful to check thyroid hormone just so that you don't miss it in general, is very poorly linked to hyponatremia.
0: Nice. Okay. Then he has a, a bit on ADH's role in releasing von Willebrand factor from the endothelium, uh, used in uremic bleeding, which we talked briefly about, and in also hemophilia and von Willebrand's disease. And then the real story of ADH is the regulation of ADH. Right. We we talked we spent a lot of time talking about the effect. In the end, the effect is not that interesting. Right. It reabsorbs water and it causes some vasoconstriction. The big story is its regulation and how those two factors interrelate. So the major stimuli to ADH secretion are increases in osmolality and decreases in effective circulating volume. And he spent some time talking about osmoreceptors and he Re- reviews the ex- classics experiments of Verney. Josh, what's was going oh, on? This is so
7: cool. I had never read these papers before, but they are just ridiculous. So the guy like <laughs> infuses hypertonic saline into the carotid artery versus the femoral artery of a dog, and then like without massively changing the total se- the total body osmolality, um just because the carotid artery feeds the head and brain, shows that that's what triggers, sorry, the, the shut-off of ADH and an, an anti sorry, the, a, no, an, and an and stimulation me. that's yeah. stimulation. what stimulates the production of ADH and prevents the water diuresis. It was just such a cool way to do this and then like does individual arteries to localize within the brain what part of the brain is making the ADH stuff that they don't have the technology to figure out what it is. Um, so it's just really like neat physiology from the 50s and 60s that like totally informs the anatomy and all the stuff we talked about in the first half of this chapter.
0: And thank God he chose a dog, not a rat, right? Because there's osmoreceptors in the bowel of the rat that are like important here. I was
7: reading about these osmoreceptors in the <laughs> gut. I think the gut osmoreceptor story has not really panned out the way the brain osmoreceptor story is clearly a thing. So I would really spend your time thinking about the, the posterior pituitary like we talked about and not worry as much about the like the rat guts. Well, the osmo the
0: osmoreceptors are not in the pituitary, right? The osmoreceptors are separate from the right. area. That's thank so you. That they're yeah. in the hypo-
3: Right. thank you the the paragraph before that he talks about the half-life of adh is 15 to 20 minutes and uh maximum diuresis after a water load is, you know, delayed by about double that or, you know, triple that, and which is really the time required for the metabolism of any ADH that's around. And, you know, when you talk to people, lay people, they'll, there's this term they use, it's called break the seal. They'll go out drinking, and they'll drink and drink and drink, and then suddenly, bingo, they start peeing, and they and that never stops all night as long as they're drinking. And really what they're waiting for, that that breaking the seal is waiting for, that, for the ADH effect to have worn off.
0: <laughs> the things you learn uh, channel your enthusiasm the myth of breaking the seal if
7: if you do a power hour and then go home you never have to worry about breaking the seal if you stay out for 90 minutes then you're in trouble
0: <laughs> so my my fellows were talking about edward 40 hands have you heard of this drinking yeah. game oh my god yes we should yeah. we should
7: no. not encourage this drinking game among to you, don't, listeners. Don't, don't.
2: is this one thing i'm too
6: old for already I think it's a Midwest thing, actually. So, I Amy, Amy,
0: Who... Amy, explain explain Edward Forty Hands.
6: It's when you're playing Euchre and you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so I went to Ohio university uh, for undergrad, and at the time, it was considered the number one party school. So, apparently, um, we used to play that. I mean. My now husband, then boyfriend, used to play this quite a bit, actually. And basically, you just take two malt liquor 40s. I don't know why they're called 40s. I, f- I forget. They're 40 I they're 40s, oh, it's 40s. It's 40s. 40 oh, God, t- I mean, I- <laughs> and then you're supposed to, like, tape them to your hands. And, like, you can't untape
0: them until you finish drinking both of these 40s. And the problem is you can't use the bathroom because your hands are immobilized because they're taped to these 40-ounce bottles. Now, Anna, you seem look like you have some experience with this. No. No, me neither. Okay. Didn't so know about uh,
4: breaking the seal either until Roger told me.
0: I,
5: I have never had a patient with X-linked uh, nephrogenic DI, uh, Melanie, but I have a friend in South America whose brother has it, and he told me one day that he's probably a 22, 23-year-old guy now, um, and he takes his medical condition very well. So what he often does, he goes to parties uh, drinking beer and he bets with random friends after drinking for an hour or two. And he brings three liter containers. That, I, I bet you that I can feel this right now. And of course, nobody believes it and, and bets him. And everybody goes, ah, go. Everybody start using And he beats everybody. He can feel those three liters, uh, obviously, because he's got Yeah. <laughs>
7: That's great. Don't have a pissing weird. contest with someone with nephrogenic
0: DI. I think that's a huge takeaway. Right after don't start a land war in Asia is don't get into a pissing contest with someone who has nephrogenic DI. These are l- words to live by.
3: You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get
0: involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well known is this. Never
7: go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs>
0: Okay, so the osmoreceptors, I love this thing. The tech changes in cell volume and depolarizes these cells and triggers, in some way, ADH release. So the osmoreceptors... In some way... in some way, they depolarize and that causes a release of ADH, some kind of signaling to the. Uh, the some way pituitary. has
7: come like a little bit more into focus over the time since the book has come out. There are these um, transient receptor potential channels or trip channels that are like stretch sensitive. And so the idea is that if you're in a hyper osmolar extracellular environment, your cell will kind of shrink down like a raisin, and the stretch amount on these channels changes. And that's the stimulus for the change in the ion flux through the channel that leads to the downstream signaling for the osmolar. Yeah, it's
5: very interesting, Josh. Actually, I came across a study looking at one of these channels, a TRIP V4 channel, that some authors mm-hmm. think that's the actual osmoreceptor. There are polymorphisms in this gene, and it has been some some epidemiological studies showing association with changes in sodium concentration in this uh, population. It's very interesting. I think we, we are getting close to understanding these ozone receptors much better.
0: And then he gets into an area that I think is super important and super massively misunderstood where he talks about the difference between osmolality and tonicity. And he brings up two examples. He talks first about urea. He says that elevated urea will not trigger the osmoreceptor because it's an ineffective osmol that the concentration of urea inside the cell and outside the cell is going to be the same. It's not going to generate any kind of movement of water or shrinkage of the cell. Super important concept. And then he says glucose... Normally is an ineffective osmol. It shouldn't trigger thirst. But if you get hyperglycemic, that means you have an insufficient amount of insulin. And this normally ineffective osmol is now an effective osmol. And elevations in glucose at that point will trigger the release of ADH. that's a super important point because uh, when you're when we're dealing with hyperglycemic I'm sure we're going to get to it again. You need to account for that. Any any thoughts there?
4: Well, just clinically, I mean, you you can tell this because people who come in with a BUN of you know two hundred, if you have people who don't dialyze often come in with really high BUN. It's not like they're, it's not like diabetic patients who come in with blood glucose of six hundred. They're not asking for water. It's. That's right. Clinically not apparent. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's
9: right.
0: Kidney failure does not cause thirst, when, even though they have very high osmolalities, and you're like, "Why aren't they thirsty?" They're not. It's because these are ineffective osmols. And then he hits the very important point that a these are osmoreceptors are exquisitely sensitive. That changes in one percent. Increases in the osmolality will trigger a release in ADH, and that osmotic threshold is going to vary between 280 and 290.
3: And if you look at uh, figure 6-7, you know, the ADH, the plasma ADH levels that go between minimum and maximum is really about 2 to 12 or something, so it's about a six-fold increase. It's very sensitive and a very small range compared to that of figure 6-8, which is, not only is it not we'll get into this but it's not a very sensitive it takes much greater volume depletion blood volume depletion before it even gets turned on but the difference between minimum and maximum is about 25 20 to 25% so it's a it, it really tells me that this is not a this hormone is not about volume it may have its volume effects but it's a water hormone
0: he goes into and talks about the role of thirst he said the osmotic stimulation for thirst is 2 to 5 points higher than for ADH receptors for the ADH release they think that it's separate sets of osmo receptors for thirst and for adh release that seems strange to me it was interesting i thought that was curious but um that's what he says i wonder if uh, old Virgie did that; did those experiments, too. Found dogs did get thirsty. even though It's hard to release. ask a dog
7: how thirsty are you on a scale of <laughs> 1 to 10. Oh,
0: okay. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay. And then the other thing that I loved is ADH. Like ADH, thirst is also stimulated by volume depletion. It's not part of my... It wasn't part of my review of systems and assessing volume status, but maybe I'm going to start to ask people if they're thirsty.
1: But, you know, oh. somebody did do a kind of cute study where they had, I guess, athletes... Drink water, and then they did PET scans on their brains, and they also asked them about like pleasantness of drinking. And when the athletes were um, had sweat and then were a little hypernatremic, they found drinking water more pleasant, and different parts of their brain lit up. I thought that was kind of interesting. That the neural response to being hypernatremic is very powerful. You know, really important. Midbrain like avalanche of neural input and then
0: there was the interesting aspect that uh, because there's this delayed feature that after you drink water it takes a while for you to neutralize the increase in osmolality. the body's got you covered though there's these what do you call them mechano- oropharyngeal
4: mechanoreceptors
0: oropharyngeal mechanical receptors, that's exactly right, and so they're just the chug sensors. Chug says it's just the process of drinking water is enough to suppress the desire to drink so that you don't overshoot and drink too much water. I thought that was wonderful. That was so cool.
3: I think it's absolutely incredible.
4: I'm actually, I, I actually asked if I could do like a little like Nate's Corner for Renal Fellow Network. So I was like, I never thought about thirst so much because it's really, you know, we've, I've had a glut of patients this week. Wait, who are rewind,
0: like, rewind. Nate's Corner? What is Nate's Corner?
4: Oh, you're behind... It's like a little...
0: I'm not behind. I'm just not aware. Okay, come on. Just, just oh, tell me what this is. Okay. Just tell me what
4: this is. So it's just so like do like a... so
0: pejorative is what I'm trying to say, right?
4: <laughs> so it's... So you remember early days of Renal Fellow Network, how we, a lot of it would just be Nathan's like musings of like, today I learned this thing and it was cool. And it's not, you know, tons of links. I feel like the bar now is very... Like everything is very evidence-based in it. And so this is just sort of a place for us to say, today I learned about the thirst mechanisms and I just had no idea. And isn't that awesome? Basically...
0: Nate's Corner. Oh, I mm. love that. Yeah. More Nate's Corner. Yeah, Good.
4: I liked it. Just, we just started it, um, and I and that yeah. was Nathan
1: Hellman. Who held Wait, now now sorry. as
0: we just started this five minutes ago is tough. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Well, there's like and 2 there's sudden, been Now like I two. find out. Oh come on. I get the, I get the you don't know you don't know what Nate's Corner is. As Melanie alluded to, the Nate in Nate's Corner refers to Nathan Hellman, who originated. The Renal Fellow Network. No one since Nate has been more associated with the Renal Fellow Network than Matt Sparks. And so I asked him to say a few words about who Nate was and what he meant to nephrology. Here's Matt.
9: When I think back about Nathan Hellman, I think of many things. First, he established a blog, Renal Fellow Network, in April of 2008. When I found this blog, um, I'll have to admit, I went every day to read what he was posting. Uh, The thing about Nate is that when he posted on Renal Fellow Network, he did not write long review articles. They were short, succinct posts that piqued your interest and curiosity. He linked to the primary literature, so if you wanted to dig for more, you could. But he was prolific. In one year, he pretty much posted every single day I first met Nate at the very first uh, course for renal physiology at Mount Desert Island. This was in 2009, and uh, he asked me to get involved. And I said, sure, but just like you do with many things, I got busy when I came back to fellowship, and I, I did not write a post. This all changed um, when he passed away, and that really just shook me to the core. I could not believe that he was no longer. At that time, I was sitting next to Jane Shell, and I was just searching, like, what what should I do? And what uh, she told me was get involved. So what I did was I Uh, Got involved and and I made it my mission to ensure that Renal Fellow Network would survive. We wanted the mission to persist and that was uh, for fellows by fellows and that uh, is something that we have really strived to maintain um, ever since that that day. Uh, Renal Fellow Network turned into a community and brought together fellows from all over the world to really talk about what was happening in the field. This was a really needed group. And it's something that we have a very special group in Neff Twitter. And I can't think of a better place to be than the community of nephrology. So, Nate Hellman uh, really is credited for establishing all of this great resources for education that we have. And uh, we definitely miss him. And as I mentioned, uh, our goal, and I think everyone, is to ensure the legacy of Nate Hellman lasts.
0: Uh, And this is also, this has come up in hyperkalemia. A lot of the hyperkalemia research has looked at aldo starts to get released when you start to eat long before that potassium reaches the body, right? Like our brain is really good at anticipating the changes, the electrolyte changes that we're going to be seeing from a meal. And it anticipates them and and sets the hormonal view the way it needs to be. Totally cool stuff.
5: There is also some work along the same lines, uh, Joel, on ingestion of sodium, uh, gastrointestinal ingestion of sodium. Do you have receptors uh, that trigger gastrin and dopamine? Uh, will be triggered immediately to uh, promote naturesis as you eat salt.
0: Yeah, it's just this system is incredibly sophisticated and we have a few basic hormones that cover it, but the more you dig, the more complex it gets and the more anticipatory it gets. So this is just a scratching the surface. And then we have the volume receptors and he said that that's a we call them volume receptors, but they're actually just baroreceptors. These are just pressure receptors and they infer volume from that so they can give erroneous Signals and heart failure, something that, man, boy, do we have a lot of experience in seeing this all the time. And this is kind of what you know, this is the the first point, the first place here where we're crossing this line, but this is going to be a recurring theme, is that we don't have a way to measure volume in the body, and so we infer volume. From pressure receptors, regardless of where they're located,
3: and I don't know how if that's really good enough. I mean, it's what we have, but you know, everybody's got a different pressure, and we've seen people that that are you know have high ADH levels retaining water with a with heart failure with a normal blood pressure. They don't have to be hypotensive. So either it's a change in pressure relative to what they're used to, or it's really just about cardiac output measuring. That's where the whole concept of effective circulating volume came from, which is which is thank God we have that word because we can't explain it, but we know what it does.
2: Yes, exactly it's just whatever volume you need for the for things to be the body's level of homeostasis and so I think this was really helpful to get to that point and I and I think that it's also helpful in bringing up because sometimes the question comes up from students like well if hypovolemia uh, presents with uh, or if if low effective circulating volume triggers adh why do heart failure patients present with hyponatremia but then patients who come in in shock are not hyponatremic and it's all because of the access to water we always have to remember that piece as well, and so I think these are just
1: little little things that I try to remember when I'm teaching this concept. So, just teasing out a little bit what you were just talking about, one of the things that for me comes up very often is. Since we think that ADH, as a lot have, of you have alluded to, is really important for osmoregulation, not for volume, when patients come into the ED with hyponatremia and then the people seeing them in the in the emergency department say, oh, well, they, maybe they're a little bit volume depleted. Even if there's no clinical history of losses, the blood pressure is normal. They have no reason to have losses. And so it, I think it shouldn't be secret volume depletion that causes ADH to be on because it kind of should be obvious based on that, you know, on that figure that it should be five, 10% before you start to see ADH really turn on. So for me, that's really important.
7: Yeah. I think this point is really critical that ADH is first and foremost, an osmolality responsive hormone. And like third is maybe a volume responsive hormone. Um, But really like osmolality is like the huge, most sensitive knob on which... ADH secretion is affected. But the one
0: weird part about it is even though it's way more sensitive to changes in osmolality, the change in the potency, the degree of ADH release in response to volume is dramatic. You get mm-hmm. way higher levels of ADH. When you finally get to the point when you finally cross over that line and you get the release of ADH in response to the drop in volume or the drop in perfusion, because we're remember we've got to keep in mind effective circulating volume, once you cross that line, the the ADH levels are crazy high, and, and that's well illustrated in a six ten. Yeah, and six yeah six ten is the is the, oh my god. There's a lot on volume, a lot of uh, in, uh, integrating this stuff.
3: There's another point that I that I want to make, and that is you know it seems counterintuitive to make yourself hyponatremia to maintain your volume. Yeah, I'd like to have more volume, but what what price do I pay? What serum sodium do I pay? But it just gets back to this axiom that volume always wins. The body's, the body's need for volume will always trump everything else. And I'd rather be hyponatremic than hypovolemic. Even though water is not that much of a volume, I'd still rather have some volume and be hyponatremic than less volume. And that's the way I always explain, you know, uh, why this is happening in heart failure. And, well, hypovolemic hyponatremia for that, that matter too, because no volume, no life. You may pay the price with hyponatremia, yeah, but.
0: yeah the, the line I always use is it's like yeah, there's airway, breathing, circulation. You have to go way down in the alphabet to get to Osmo regulation, right? A, <laughs> B, C, <Z>, D. E. <laughs> so uh, actually, uh, Just do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on on figure 610? Because that's when you look at that figure, it is not immediately apparent what you're supposed to do with that. That's a, I don't think that's an intuitive figure. I think to me that was a figure. That's why, that's why I'm asking you. Oh, sure. I mean, to me, that's the
7: figure that illustrates the concept you were just talking about two minutes ago, which is that at different degrees of hypovolemia, so those are the slopes moving toward the left, or different degrees of hypervolemia, those are the flatter slopes moving to the right, you change the relationship between the osmolality detected by the osmoreceptor and the amount of ADH that is produced.
0: So the number of the circle
7: is what? Is the percent... Volume status change. Okay, so let's go to
0: negative twenty. So we're we're very very hypovolemic.
7: So when you have that significant degree of hypovolemia, your osmoreceptors are working overtime to secrete even more ADH to retain even more water to give you a little bit of extra volume stimulus, even though it's not super effective volume stimulus to maintain the blood pressure.
0: And the interesting one is if you look at an osmolality of two sixty five, which is where that that graph starts. That's a low. That's that's hypo. Uh, osmotic, right? And even at that low osmolality, they have a high ADH, quite a bit higher as you look across. And that's the point that where Roger was focusing in is that if you are both hyponatremic and hypovolemic, you're going to get increased ADH, that volume wins over osmolality.
3: And the inverse of that is the other side of the curve. So if you look at the plus 20, that once you're your volume has gone up by, say, 20%, uh, you're much less likely to respond for a hyperosmolarity. You're going to release much less ADH because you don't want to retain water. Again, you're trying to defend your volume because I'm already hypervolemic. So uh, this is probably one of my five favorite graphs of all renal physiology, and it goes back to, what, 1970s? And I guarantee you that when in 200 years, when it's Rose's of 40th edition, this figure will still be there, and no one will have ever redone it, and it's as important as anything.
0: One of the cool explanations that I never got is we always hear about how primary hyperaldo predisposes to hypernatremia. And I never quite understood it. And Rose does a beautiful job of providing clarity here. And this is the mechanism right here is that the sodium retention that you get from primary hyperaldo causes an expansion in volume, which makes you less likely to release ADH. So you get kind of a a little bit of a DI picture. You waste extra waste that water and that results in the hypernatremia which is, tends to be mild and not a major feature of high, primary hyperaldo, but that's the mechanism here, is that, that volume expansion suppressing ADH release. Very cool.
5: Resets your awesome step. This is a extremely clinically relevant graph. You know, we love it. As the physiology is, is brilliant, but is so clinically relevant. It explains why cirrhotics and patients with heart failure are hyponatremic despite a low plasma osmolality, which, for instance, in a case of somebody drinking tons of water like psychogenic polydipsia, they will have very low plasma osmolality and the ADH will be completely shut down. And that would be the original graph 6-7, the figure 6-7, will be no ADH whatsoever. But yet, in the heart failure patient and the cirrhotic patient, as we have discussed, because of a poor effective circulatory volume, they will have a lot of ADH despite the low plasma osmolality. And that's how they become
0: hyponatremic. And then he closes out ADH with a talk of other stimuli besides hypovolemia, besides increased osmolality. He says that nausea can increase ADH 500 fold, and we boy, we see this all the time in yeah. SIADH. Pain after surgery causes an ADH release, and then leaves us with that awesome part. It says that pregnancy will lower the osmoto- osmoregulatory stimuli for ADH and thirst, so there's a lower set point for sodium.
3: Does anybody ever have any, I was thinking about this today, any, any explanation for why the uh, in pregnancy the your, os, your osmostat gets uh, uh, reset to the left a little bit? Any reason? Can you figure out any, any possible way, what advantage it would be to have that?
4: Maybe just to
2: protect it's you against a reset like
3: osmostat. Awesome
2: oh, no, but I think is it, you mean because of the, the hyponatremia that you see in pregnancy, but this yeah, is I mean
3: basically you still respond it's a reset osmostat. Awesome you still you still dilute at one level hundred percent and concentrate at one level hundred percent at one level. It just shifts it a little bit to the left. Those numbers get shifted. So it's not, you know you know, nature doesn't make mistakes. Everything is I totally believe there's a reason for that. And I just would I wondered if anybody has any idea what the reason would be.
2: Well, what I had read about in pregnancy was that this is a state of like you it's almost double your circulatory volume, and so I thought that the hyponatremia is more dilutional, not necessarily a reset osmostat. So
3: I'm curious. Well, it is dilutional, but yet you know you have to maintain to, to maintain that dilution, you have to suppress your ADH.
0: Obviously, Roger meant stimulate your ADH.
3: You know, where at 138, I would be. I would be peeing water and they don't pee to water till they're 136 or whatever. So you still have to have that, that osmoset awesome reset. So, you know, I've never seen an explanation. I'm sure there's a reason. There it's got to be,
4: be something to protect against hemorrhage. That's got to
3: be it. I was going to say maybe oh it protects against,
6: like,
4: hypotension. Yeah. Because you wouldn't
6: that's want hypotension to the placenta. That's what you're at most risk the placenta, of. So.
0: Okay. That's a lot of conjecture. We are done with ADH. There's another hormone called aldosterone. It's a good thing it's not an important hormone or taking yes, a long I'm time to discuss. <laughs> well, I am yeah. a little concerned. I'm, yes, we are burning, I know. We are burning up the time, but we do need... But, you know, we, we, no, we need to talk about it. Got
4: to talk about Aldo. This
0: one's not an optional one. If there's a section on prostaglandins, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be talking about prostaglandins or ANP, but we are definitely going to do Aldo. Okay, it's produced in the adrenal gland. And apparently there's a part of the adrenal gland called the zona glomerulosa. Josh, you were waxing poetic about the zona glomerulosa in the uh, WhatsApp. What's, what, why are you fascinated by this? So
7: I think this is a really interesting division of labor within the adrenal gland. And honestly, I never really think about the adrenal gland as a nephrologist most of the time. You know the word adrenal comes from renal. It does. <laughs> it kind of is like a nice little hat for the kidney. It keeps it warm in the winter. Um,
0: but <laughs> Kidneys lose 70% of their heat through the adrenal gland.
7: <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's nice is that is in figure 611, there's a really nice demonstration of how the individual hormones are produced um, with the individual enzymes that no one ever remembers that take each hormone to its next subsequent metabolic step. And I kind of am looking at this figure, and I know it's not designed this way, but I look at the first column is zona glomerulosa, the second column is zona fasciculata, and third column is zona reticularis. And you really do see that in, in that left column, you get all that regulation of volume status. And so I think when we move from thinking about physiology to pathophysiology, and the he talks about glucocorticoid remediable hyper, hyperaldosteronism, or GRA, at the end of this intro section to aldosterone, you start to get a sense of like why this might be a problem. That normally there's feedback on this first column glomerulosa section, but instead, you're making aldosterone in the zona fasciculata where there are no receptors for aldosterone to feed back on it. And so you just get unremitting aldosterone production uh, unless you feed back on it with something like a steroid, like a cortisol
0: or, or other steroid that you eat. Well, I think it's just the volume of aldosterone produced doesn't smell the volume of cortisol produced, right? We produce a thousand times as much cortisol as we produced aldosterone. So as soon as you have the promoter region for cortisol fused to aldosterone synthesis, you're
7: off to the races, right? Yeah. And and that comes from this really beautiful genetics paper that came out in 1992 in Nature by Rick Lifton. It has this giant family tree, and you can follow the individual markers and see which people have hyperaldosteronism and hypertension and which ones don't, and then maps it back exactly as you talked about to this crossover event where you get the cortisol promoter in front of the aldosterone synthesis-producing gene. And so you produce tons of aldosterone, and it's not inhibitable by the normal
0: things that feed back on aldosterone. And then the treatment for this
7: is uh, is steroids. It's called
0: glucocorticoid It's in the name,
7: right? So it's glucocorticoid remedial. You give someone glucocorticoid, it feeds back on the part of the adrenal gland that would normally suppress
0: cortisol production. But instead here, it's suppressing aldosterone. I would support more diseases having the treatment right in the name of the disease. I think that's a good idea. Agreed.
3: This is actually, to me, it's, it's incredible that you've got these two genes right next to each other and that you get this chimera and therefore they, they come together. So that cortisol stimulates the uh, mineralocorticoid and becomes a mineralocorticoid. Has anybody ha- had a case of GRH? No. I mean, it's on our boards. It's, uh, you know, it's autosomal dominant. It's uh, bad hypertension, strong family history, a lot of strokes, and and really pretty easy to treat if you figure it out, but it's, I've never seen one. Joel, have you ever seen one?
0: I will tell you that I have a patient that, what's the most terrifying referral to get? The third opinion. And so I got the third opinion for resistant hypertension and I was going through her history and I said, have you ever been on steroids before? And she said, yes. I said, how was your blood pressure on steroids? And her eyes lit up and she said, my blood pressure was great when I was on steroids. I, I ordered all the tests and I put her on five milligrams of prednisone and her blood pressure went from 200s and in the ER every week to, she hasn't been to the ER since then, and I absolutely cured her, but she definitely did not have this disease because I checked her aldo. No, because I checked her aldo level, which should be sky high, right? And it wasn't, right? And it wasn't sky high. It was It was reasonable. It was like six or seven. It wasn't low. It wasn't high. It was just normal. But- I fixed her with steroids. She, uh, she has it. There's something going on in the adrenal gland, I'm sure of it. And I was able to suppress whatever was going on that was driving her high blood pressure. We did a withdrawal test where we stopped the steroids because I half didn't believe that I had the right diagnosis and blood pressure shot right back up. And I'm convinced that this is fixing her blood pressure, and I, but I don't know the diagnosis.
1: You should send her blood to, um, to Regliff. They will check it for free. I will do that. Don't put that on the podcast, but that's true.
7: You heard it here. Joel Top says give everyone steroids for
0: their high blood pressure.
1: (laughs) And I said, Rick Lipton will do lots of things for free.
0: (laughs) So that is all about the production. Is there anything else interesting about the production? Action of aldosterone. Boy, we talked about this on previous podcasts. We know that it increases sodium chloride, reabsorption in the cortical collecting duct and secretion of potassium and hydrogen there. And then I have this note that says six figure 612 is strange. And I honestly take a look at figure 612. And there's this aldosterone with these two arrows. And to me, it feels like there should be a block of aldosterone, that this is is the The time. time during aldosterone secretion. But the two arrows make it look like there are two doses of aldosterone being given. And that doesn't make any sense for the effect that you have on the electrolytes.
1: I think that was just the period when they were receiving it. One arrow is the
0: beginning and the other arrow is the end of it. Poor graphic design. We will have to write a letter to the graphic designers of this.
1: Complain to Dr. Little. That's why he was an endocrinologist, not a nephrologist.
0: Okay, Dr. Little. Got some explaining to do.
1: He was very upset when it turned out to be a kidney. He thought he had discovered a new hormone. And alas... Wait, wait, Melly.
0: start that story from the beginning because that's too good. Okay, so what is Little syndrome?
1: Well, Little syndrome is when the epithelial sodium channel that we fondly call ENAC on the luminal membrane of principal cells, when that is constitutively active. And so that would lead to reabsorption of sodium, the lumen would get negative, and then there would be loss of potassium and in the neighboring cells, hydrogen and ammonium excretion just as in that figure. So the effect of aldosterone in essence, but constituently active. And so these patients have severe hypertension from a young age, I think it's autosomal dominant also. It is, is, auto, it yes. is
0: autosomal dominant. This is just kind of a, like a clue that if you have a gain in function mutation, they tend to be autosomal dominant because you only need one copy of it. But if you have a loss of function, you need to lose both copies of the gene. So it tends to be autosomal
1: recessive. The lore is that the family that Dr. Little studied, one of these patients had, I guess, nephrectomy, which improved their hypertension and a transplant. But the the, the lore is that he was very upset I don't know if it's true or not that it turned out to be a kidney problem, not a new hormone. That's the story that I heard, but it probably is not true.
0: That's a great story. Okay, okay. So how do we get to Little Syndrome? Oh, because we were talking because about the
8: picture. Dr. Little. little.
0: Little made that graph. Little made that graph. So not only did he not invent a hormone, but he wasn't a good graphic designer. Things are getting ugly for Mister Little. Let's talk about licorice. Okay. Yeah. So this is the and this is the key thing is that he said that all of the aldosterone sensitive cells in the collect. Anywhere in the body, if they are aldosterone sensitive, they need to have this hormone 11 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Roger, tell us that story.
3: Well, cortisol is very, um, it, is, it will respond to, to mineral corticoid receptors, but it doesn't have the effect because 11 beta hydroxysteroid hydrogenase converts it. The cortisone, and it's which is then becomes an inactive metabolite. So so it's fine that you can have all this cortisol that wants to activate the receptor, but it doesn't because you have this. The problem is is that uh, there is a very potent uh, inhibitor of 11-beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, and that is what's found in licorice, which is. I'll try to pronounce this right, Glycyrrhetinic acid. And it has to be real licorice. It's not the stuff we buy in our candy stores. You have to get the real stuff from usually Great Britain or other places. It's also found in anise liquor. It's been demonstrated in chewing tobacco with its anise flavored as well. And there's been cases there of hyperaldosterone. It's actually a syndrome of, of
0: uh... apparent medical quote, unquote, excess.
3: Yeah, apparent mineral corticoid excess where it's where it's suppressed, but you're having the effect of that because now cortisol becomes acts like a mineral corticoid because you've inhibited that, uh, it broke away that inhibition. One of the things we're always asking our patients with hypertension and hypokalemia is do they eat licorice and do they chew tobacco and things like that? And I've, again, that's not something I've seen, uh, but I've seen enough case reports of it. And it's, you know, these are two really fascinating diseases to me, which, you know, they may sound rare, but it... But it they bring out that, that and glucocorticoid remedial hypertension. They're very useful to, to understand physiology, even if you've never seen the disease. So I'm hoping one of these days I'll see one of those too. But, Melanie, uh, I haven't.
0: How, how many of these patients do you have in your clinic? Syndrome of impairmental cortic acid. I'm sure you have one, right?
1: Oh, no. You mean with like a licorice gluttony? Do
0: you have any of those?
1: No. Uh, you know, I've heard of a few, but I don't have any of my own patients.
0: Right. Just this year, uh, New England Journal of Medicine had a story of a patient who had a cardiac arrest. I think it was a terrible story of a patient with licorice ingestion and developed uh, hypokalemia from it and ended up dying of. It
4: was. It, that was it a was very disgusting. upsetting case. That was right before our renal section. So all the med students like knew that licorice tidbit. I went to tell them they're all like, yeah,
1: yeah, I like licorice. Licorice is much more available now. You can get it in a lot of different stores, Trader Joe's. It's a lot of sort of upscale supermarkets. It's in licorice tea. I know of a woman actually who had a cardiac arrest also and was drinking a lot of licorice tea. I I knew you were going to have a case. I just knew (laughs) you were going to have a case, Melody. You were like, yes. Well, I know her. I didn't, I didn't,
0: didn't I didn't take care
1: of her. I didn't think of it.
0: Okay. Uh, But Stu
1: Lacker and I eat a lot of licorice. So we're in trouble. I just bought a blood pressure cup.
7: I think that's like the that's like the nephrologist version of Edward Forty Hands taking this back to what we were. (laughs) Just alternate licorice pieces with the other nephrologists until one of you just bites the dust.
2: No, well, I wanted to tell you one of our attendings here when I was a fellow. One of the attendings wanted to do this this experiment, so he got like very like legitimate. It's like legit licorice, and the fellows there was a a tally uh, on the on the whiteboard of um, like pieces of licorice that they were taking, and then uh, there were serial blood pressure measurements and one of the fellows got hypertensive and we're like, okay, we're stopping this. <laughs> like we're stopping this experiment.
7: It sounds like the perfect like Matt Desrael and
0: physiology course experiment for next year.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh my
0: God. That's awesome. Outstanding Letty. Wait wait a wait a sacrifice your body for science. Yeah. <laughs> or or at least for fun, right? Yeah, okay. at least for him. Yeah. And then kind of an aside, what Roger was saying is that the the mineral corticoid receptor is this weird receptor because it is very promiscuous. Is that it, it binds cortisol And aldosterone, and in order for aldosterone to be a unique hormone, it required the development of this eleven beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Like you, it wasn't just that you, you that the mineral corticoid receptor predates the development of aldosterone, and it wasn't a unique system until you had. The receptor, which was already there, the development of aldosterone, which happened kind of incidentally, and then the 11 beta 11-beta uh, hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, which allowed you to separate the function of the mineral corticoid system from cortisol, the glucocorticoid system. It's a really fascinating kind of evolutionary tree. We got
7: this We got this cool article from Brian Bird about this individual yeah. point mutation in the mineral corticoid receptor that's somewhere in the evolution between fish and vertebrates, it's changed at this one amino acid site. So that in fish, if you give a fish spironolactone, it acts just like aldosterone. But if you give a spironolactone to a person, obviously it acts like anti-aldosterone. And so it's really just a very small change that gives the mineral corticoid receptor that activity. So we can
5: link to that in the, in the notes as well.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating system. What, what do you got, JC? I just wanted to
5: kind of bring the clinical perspective to this Things that we just discussed, which started with Little syndrome, and then we followed with the AME, a cortical excess, because we, th- we may think that those are not very common diagnoses, but we actually think about it often in a nephrology clinic. We start with a patient with secondary hypertension or resistant hypertension, or perhaps hypertension associated with a little bit of hypokalemia. Immediately, we think primary hyperaldo, we order a plasma aldosterone concentration and a plasma inactivity. When those results come back and both are suppressed, we move we should move directly to think about these two entities, because aldosterone is not the problem. It's correctly suppressed because something has happened to the enac that is going out of whack and it's unrelenting. and it could be because you're have irritation and that's littles, but it's because cortisol is actually activating the receptor leading to the channel, not aldosterone, which is the licorice story.
0: Okay. Excellent. And then uh, going back, continue on the action of aldosterone. If we move down the nephron, we're now at the collecting, the medullary collecting tubules. At this point, aldosterone will stimulate the reabsorption of sodium, but not the secretion of potassium. Rose doesn't give us a mechanism for how this happens.
6: This is the aldosterone paradox, right? Basically, the aldosterone paradox is how aldosterone can seemingly independently regulate sodium-potassium despite its roles of increasing sodium reabsorption and potassium secretion, but it seems to be able to do these effects independently. So like um, when you have low blood volume, you have increased aldosterone and sodium retention, but there's actually low potassium secretion because of decreased sodium delivery. And in states of hyperkalemia have increased aldosterone, but actually there is low sodium retention because there is reduced sodium reabsorption in the distal tubule, And this effect is um, because of uh, hyperkalemia and low angiotensin too. And so that's uh, kind of mediated through the Wink-4 proteins. And so basically, uh, aldosterone is able to regulate both the sodium and potassium independently, even though it's a hormone that affects both of
0: those things. This is the most important concept that you must understand about aldosterone, that you've got a hormone that is regulated by potassium level And regulated by volume status, so it should be intimately related to sodium and potassium, but it's able to control both of those variables independently, and it's an absolutely elegant system. And what it has is you have two systems that are kind of in opposition. And so we had talked earlier when we talked about ADH we were talking about tubular flow and Roger really leaned into that it's not tubular flow, it's sodium delivery. And so I this is the perfect time to to talk about that this is the sodium delivery. And so the idea here is that when you are volume depleted, you want to retain sodium, but you don't want to alter potassium secretion. So you're volume depleted, you're going to ramp up your aldosterone That's going to cause you to reabsorb sodium, and you would think it would cause you to secrete a lot of potassium and cause hypokalemia. But another aspect of volume depletion is you're going to get increased sodium reabsorption proximally. That's going to be in the proximal tubule. We talked about that with angiotensin 2. That's going to be in the loop of Henle. So you're going to get decreased distal delivery of sodium, and that's going to antagonize potassium secretion. So yeah, your aldosterone will be kicking out K, but your Going to limit the amount of potassium secretion you're going to get with volume depletion because of this f- f- sodium depletion or decreased distal delivery of sodium. And that allows potassium handling to remain neutral even though you have an increased sodium re- reabsorption.
7: For those of you following along at home, that's the first line of Table 6 3. And you can really just walk from left to right following exactly what Joel was talking about there and really just taking it from volume depletion to hypervolemia, the sodium load to potassium load to potassium depletion, and really seeing how it's both the effect of aldosterone and the volume status in the presence or absence of a high aldosterone that, that really leads to those two different effects on volume retention and potassium excretion.
0: And uh, the, one of the things that I love to think about is, well, how does this break down? How do you get increased uh, renal loss of potassium? How do you get diuretic-induced hypokalemia, and you can think about, well, what happens there when you have a loop diuretic? That's going to increase distal delivery of sodium, and if it's a good diuretic, it's going to ramp up aldosterone because they're getting volume depleted. So now you have increased aldosterone and increased distal delivery of sodium and those two together will increase potassium losses and that'll cause the hypokalemia and it's, this, it's the pairing of those two things when you get those working in parallel rather than opposition which is the natural finding so you get the hypokalemia
3: and the caveat of that is with heart failure and where you have very high aldosterone levels and cirrhosis where you have very high aldosterone levels you don't typically see hypo, the hypokalemia because the sodium delivery is not getting there because it's all ribs or approximately and then if you get but then if you give them the loop diuretic that allows the sodium delivery to to occur. And the second caveat is the, the fact that what diuretics can often do to, to make primary hyperaldosteronism show up. You may not have uh, much of a, a hypokalemia or metabolic alkalosis, but once you increase your delivery by giving them a diuretic in the setting of all that aldosterone, suddenly the electrolytes uh, abnormalities will will, will will show up. But clearly, secondary hyperaldosteronism does not give you those electrolyte disorders without without a diuretic.
1: So a little just circling back to the aldosterone paradox, I had always taught that just the way that you've outlined it, that it has everything to do with distal delivery and aldo- and the presence of aldosterone. And that works for me. And I loved it. And I love to talk about how sometimes aldosterone seems like a sodium retaining hormone and sometimes like a potassium secreting hormone, but it was all about distal delivery. And it turns out that nothing is left to chance, just as before when we were hinting with ADH and potassium, if that's a thing, because it all depends on whether ANG2 is on or not. Not just because ANG2, angiotensin 2, causes proximal reabsorption of sodium, but it actually limits K-loss in the principal cells. So if aldosterone is on, independently because of potassium stimulation and without ang2 then you can have potassium secretion whereas if ang2 is on that will stimulate sodium reabsorption in the sodium chloride cotransporters and block K secretion
8: yeah,
6: and I think one more thing about the paradox is not just having to do with like distal sodium delivery. I think that it has to do with like, aren't like wink kinases involved in this as well. So I think that there's 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 more regulation rather than just like distal sodium delivery. It's kind of, um, it's all regulated in the cell too by these wink kinases. I think that ANG2 affects the winks a little bit as well.
5: So. Yeah, you're talking about the potassium switch. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. You, oh, yeah. No, 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 sorry. What you're saying is correct. It just has this name. They call it now the potassium switch in the distal convoluted tubule to regulate the sodium delivery. We'll probably have plenty of time to talk about it in future episodes. I think that's a great idea.
0: Future pushing as much as we can to future episodes is what we need to do now. Okay, <laughs> low salt diet will increase our sodium channels from one hundred to three thousand. I think he's already given this fact. I think this is a rerun. I mean, I love know, we're, that only, fact. We're, we're only six chapters in. He's already done running doing reruns. Very concerned about. Dr. Rose here. And then he actually goes to this, I love this logic chain. He says that when we see uh, patients that have high aldol levels, we see three effects. We see increased sodium potassium ATPase. We see increased potassium channels and we increase... ENAC channels. And he walks through a logic where he says, what is the driving factor? What starts that is increased ENAC, that that's the first factor, and that he uses studies that look at amiloride, and that they're able to block the subsequent changes. And so that the aldosterone seems to focus on the ENAC channels, Increase sodium movement Inside the cells And that has Downstream effects That increase Your sodium potassium ATPase And the And the potassium channels uh, So that was I thought that was Interesting and then he switches from our principal cells, which we've been talking about, and he goes to the intercalated cells. And he has this quote. He says, the effect of aldosterone is permissive in hydrogen secretion since there is little evidence that acid-base balance directly influences aldo-release. A- anybody have a thought there? I never really spent a lot of time thinking about it. I was thinking of it always as a, a potassium and a sodium handling issue, but we certainly see metabolic alkalosis frequently when you have increased aldo levels but he thinks it's a, it's a permissive effect here.
7: I drew myself a little picture on, on, in the book where I have a potassium going into the often cell. For every potassium that goes, goes in, you can actually get a proton that comes out, too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think that kind of exchange helped me get an understanding of what I thought was going on an on acid-base level. How accurate that is, I'm not sure, but that's just kind of how I'm rationalizing it here.
0: And then he says the extra renal effects of aldosterone, he points to the salivary glands, the colon, and the sweat. And we kind of see classic aldo effects at all three of those locations where you get increased potassium in the fluid, in the sal- in saliva in the response to aldo, in colonic secretions, and in the sweat with decreased sodium.
3: And we see that in our dialysis patients that become constipated. A hundred percent. Where they, um, they they're... Their ability, that's their one extra renal, because renal's gone, way of excreting potassium actually kicks in and they, they can become hyperkalemic. Now, it's, it's more of a story than I've actually seen.
7: I, I've had this happen at the VA. So I had a patient who underwent a colectomy, he was an ESRD patient, and it's like the day after the colectomy. From that point on, he needed daily dialysis to figure out what to do with his potassium until we made a bigger Mm -hmm. change for him. And so that that definitely made an impression that that the colon can be a big potassium excreting nephron when you really need it. Letty, you like
0: to talk about the colon as a big dumb nephron. Any thoughts there?
2: The only thing I'm thinking of, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this later, is just how much the bowel does play a role in this because we talk about all the time in patients who get started on an ACE inhibitor or some other RAS blockade and then they develop hyperkalemia, but they're uric. and sometimes I think that we forget the role that the that these the intestinal also and, and the colonic uh, um, uh, channels also contribute to the hyperkalemia and that it's not just um, in patients who still make urine that uh, with uh, on dialysis that you can see hyperkalemia but this is uh, really important.
0: Agreed. Oh, the clinically important finding.
5: Sorry, I think there was a paper years ago where they treated dialysis patients with licorice to manage uh, hyperkalemic events. I vaguely remember reading it was KI or Jason I don't recall the details, but I, re- I recall reading and it was all about. Promoting uh, colonic secretion of potassium in in uric patients.
0: Okay, that's a weird flex, but
5: okay.
9: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> okay. Liquor. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Go
7: for it. <laughs> Before we leave aldosterone effect, um, I think the one thing that's really come to the fore in the last couple of years has been the actions of aldosterone on cardiac remodeling. And again, we're a renal physiology podcast. I don't want to take us too far away from there. But the way that we see cardiologists push spironolactone is probably not driven by its effects on blood pressure or its effects on potassium, but really probably due to effects that aldosterone has directly on cardiac myocytes and hypertrophy and inflammation. And the thought is that somehow spironolactone or plurinone have these magical anti-inflammatory effects that block those effects that are really important in advanced heart failure.
0: Well, I think we're uh, we're about to enter an era where we have, uh, was known is the name of the drug, right? And this is this the new fancy non-steroidal aldosterone antagonist. And this has nephroprotection and they're pr- currently running a trial to look at cardioprotection. And it'll be interesting. I mean, I, we'll see if it's positive, but that's a, an interesting role. And I got to say, I do have a conflict of interest there. I should say I've, I've been a, um advisory board for Bayer. So we recorded this quite a while ago. And the study that I was referring to that showed nephroprotection was Fidelio. And the summer of 2021, Figaro came out, which showed that the drug hit its endpoint for cardiac protection. So, finerenone has both nephroprotection and cardioprotection in patients with diabetes.
7: But we know that spironolactone is part of that. Uh, guideline directed medical therapy for folks with heart failure with reduced DF. And so,
0: andeplerinone,
7: andeplerinone, and but It never think, gets
0: the respect it deserves.
7: I think until we get evidence of non-inferiority or superiority from these two agents, I think those spironolactone, aplerinone agents are really going to have a real anchor role after your ACE inhibitor, after your volume status management, after your beta blocker, really being in the in that next spot for heart failure with reduced ejection
0: fraction. Okay, control of the release of aldosterone to primary stimuli angiotensin 2, which is our volume trigger and direct stimuli by plasma potassium. He mentioned very specifically that the aldo starts to rise as your potassium rises above 3.5. I was kind of surprised that it was started at such a low level and that both of these triggers acted the zona glomerulosa to promote the conversion of cholesterol to pregnenolone and then also from corticosterone to aldosterone. So there's two points of control there.
7: Yeah, this was this is the part that I also got really excited about. This is zona glomerulosa cells, that these are the most potassium sensitive cells in the entire body. So if you think it's a cardiac myocyte, you're wrong. This is the potassium sensor that really fine tunes the potassium management and that there's this potassium channel called the task 3 channel that really seems to be critical in setting the the potassium set point.
0: And then he mentions two other minor stimulants. He says ACTH is a minor stimulant of aldosterone release. And then he said that aldo is also stimulated by hyponatremia. And I just put a question mark on that because I thought that was interesting. And he does emphasize that both those are relatively minor. The last thing on aldosterone is aldosterone escape, which is a really important concept. And so you can imagine somebody in primary hyperaldo, they're going to continually reabsorb sodium, and they should just get more and more fluid overloaded, more and more edema, more and more hypertensive. And he says, no, 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 that's not what happens. Once your weight crosses about three kilograms, you get this phenomenon of aldosterone escape, which is a spontaneous diuresis. And it was interesting, he points to some data that tries to isolate where in the nephron this diuresis happens. Where do you get this naturesis? So you're going to get the spontaneous increase in urine output, but you get continual potassium secretion and so that seems to isolate the naturesis to not in the traditional aldo-sensitive area. So it seems to happen somewhere proximal to that um, and he says, he states that it may be regulated by AMP.
6: Is this like why you get pressure naturesis?
0: Yeah, like, it's supposed, I, mean, I think it's the same I think it's the same thing here.
3: Well, that might be a good time for me to jump in to talk about mineral corticoid antagonism. So, spironolactone is a diuretic that works differently than loop thiazides which have their effect by being secreted in the proximal tubule, Then they float downstream where they block their respective receptors. It's a steroid, and as such, can cross cellular membranes pretty easily therefore rapidly transported in the cell, where it blocks aldosterone, and aldosterone is effect in the nucleus of increasing messenger RNA for the synthesis of sodium potassium ATPase, as well as sodium and potassium channels. Spironolactone blocks this production, and eventually some of the pumps and channels go away, and so you have less aldosterone effect. This takes a little time, so an immediate diuresis is not seen with it, unlike that with loop and thiazides, which are fairly immediate. Spironolactone is a prodrug, it gets converted to something called alpha-thiomethyl spironolactone, which has a half-life of about 14 hours. and is not water-soluble, so there really is no IV form of it. It was developed from progesterone, which also has some aldosterone antagonism. Spironolactone is a moderately weak diuretic by itself unless it's used in Very high doses. Often used, however, with loop diuretics, and is one of the limiting factors of a loop diuretic is sodium reabsorption downstream as a result of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system being activated by the loop diuretic. So, by blocking aldosterone, the loop diuretic will have a significantly greater diuresis. It also has the added effect of decreasing hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis that's often seen as a result of aldosterone doing its job on the increased distal sodium delivery. Spermonolactone also has antiandrogen effects which result in some of the side effects related to the drug, specifically gynecomastia and sexual dysfunction in men, but women can also develop breast enlargement and tenderness. This often limits the usefulness of this drug. However, this antiandrogen effect has been used therapeutically for uh, early puberty in boys and in men who desire transgenderization, uh, turning to women although this requires pretty high doses, up to about 400 milligrams a day, and one of the unfortunate side effects, therefore, with this high dose is decreased libido and sexual function. Uh, There's a fairly rare medical condition called Geller syndrome, which is really cool. It's a gain-of-function mutation of the aldosterone receptor where both agonists and antagonists Act only as agonists. Therefore, progesterone, which typically an antagonist, now becomes an agonist, and women with this very rare condition will have hypertension, which become quite evident with the high progesterone levels normally preg- present when they're pregnant. Of interest as well as spironolactone, normally an antagonist, now becomes an agonist in Geller syndrome, and therefore cannot be used. Spironolactone dosing is typically 25 to 50 milligrams a day, but can be up, used up to 400 milligrams a day in primary hyperaldo. There's also another commercially available aldosterone antagonist called aplerinone, which is not as strong and requires about twice the dosing. But there's also significantly less antiandrogen effect, and so it's often preferred in men who develop gynecomastia. It's tough to get approved, and you pretty much have to fail spironolactone from side effects before insurance companies will approve it have a final really cool fact that I learned in reading about spironolactone when used for its antiandrogen effect, especially when you give it at high doses. While it is effective as an antiandrogen, it still has the diuretic effects, and this diuretic effect can be a bit disabling. One of the maneuvers that has been used to work around this is to give them licorice. This is the real licorice, the licorice that contains glycerotinic acid, which blocks 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase which, of course, we all remember, is the enzyme in the kidney that converts active cortisol to inactive cortisone. Licorice blocks this conversion, and since cortisol will activate the mineralocorticoid receptor, it, in essence, can negate the effect of spironolactone blockade. So you're actually using the mineralocorticoid effect of licorice to overcome the diuretic effect of spironolactone's aldosterone blockade. I think that's incredibly clever. I'll finish by saying I believe as a diuretic, spironolactone is underutilized, especially when we're using combination diuretics in relatively diuretic-resistant patients. I find it especially useful with a loop diuretic where you get a huge increase in diuresis with the added bonus of significantly minimizing the hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis.
0: Okay, guys. It's late. I'm gonna call it for this for this episode. Are we cool with that?
6: I just want to. Say, yeah. Can I just yeah. say one yeah. thing? I'm sorry. <laughs> so I know we didn't talk about prostaglandin, um, but I just wanted to say about a quick note about like NSAIDs and prostaglandin. So and I, I don't know how many of you know Steve Coca, uh, Doctor Coca. Yep. So he is. Um, a very enthusiastic person and um, he always gives a lecture at the beginning of the of the fellowship and he talks about um prostagland independent um aki and so why some people are very sensitive to NSAIDs and other people are not sensitive to NSAIDs because their gfr is maintained through prostagland independent and i think um you know table six five he talks about you know true volume depletion heart failure cirrhosis but then also other things that weren't really mentioned on here uh, he also mentions glomerular disease and hypercalcemia, but um like ckd and older age those are also very like highly prostaglandin dependent um, states and so that's why we don't that's part of the reason why we don't like to give NSAIDs in our ckd patients and in our older patients they tend to be a little bit more sensitive to NSAIDs. so yeah, he's
0: a, he, if you get an opportunity to hear steve koga give a lecture do not miss it's it he so is awesome yeah. he's an enthusiastic guy Joel, it it was, are you, we're going to talk thinking... about
2: prostaglandins in the next episode are, yeah, are we, yeah, we,
1: we would kind talk of
0: start it? at a and p and move oh. on move that into the next we're, episode. That there. I, re- I read that whole AMP section. We're skipping AMP. We're going to we start need. with prostaglandins and move on. You
1: don't want to just talk about it for a minute to say how it's kind of like you weak? Know, I, like,
0: I will not deny
4: and I read you some A&P. cool like,
1: nephrolysin inhibitors. I, I agree. I, said, agree. Like, I think
4: in okay. the
7: setting of Sakibitrol Belsarin, I think we should talk about it, but I don't okay.
0: know
4: if
1: it needs to be tonight. Okay, I mean, it's not it tonight. Does, it needs to not be tonight. It's not
4: tonight. Yeah, I think we're done. And I
1: will
0: not deny you AMP. Okay? So I've hit the hit the stop button.
1: Wait, when are we meeting next?